chapter thirteen of the birth of tragedy by friedrich nietzsche this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter thirteen that socrates stood in close relationship to euripides in the tendency of his teaching did not escape the notice of contemporaneous antiquity the most eloquent expression of this felicitous insight being the tale current in athens that socrates was accustomed to help euripides in poetizing both names were mentioned in one breath by the adherents of the good old time whenever they came to enumerating the popular agitators of the day to whose influence they attributed the fact that the old marathonian stalwart capacity of body and soul was more and more being sacrificed to a dubious enlightenment involving progressive degeneration of the physical and mental powers it is in this tone half indignantly and half contemptuously that aristophanic comedy is wont to speak of both of them to the consternation of modern men who would indeed be willing enough to give up euripides but cannot suppress their amazement that socrates should appear in aristophanes as the first and head sophist as the mirror and epitome of all sophistical tendencies in connection with which it offers the single consolation of putting aristophanes himself in the pillory as a rakish lying alcibiades of poetry with out here defending the profound instincts of aristophanes against such attacks i shall now indicate by means of the sentiments of the time the close connection between socrates and euripides with this purpose in view it is especially to be remembered that socrates as an opponent of tragic art did not ordinarily patronize tragedy but only appeared among the spectators when a new play of euripides was performed the most noted thing however is the close juxtaposition of the two names in the delphic oracle which designated socrates as the wisest of men but at the same time decided that the second prize in the contest of wisdom was due to euripides sophocles was designated as the third in this scale of rank he who could pride himself that in comparison with aeschylus he did what was right and did it moreover because he knew what was right it is evidently just the degree of clearness of this knowledge which distinguishes these three men in common as the three knowing ones of their age the most decisive word however for this new and unprecedented esteem of knowledge and insight was spoken by socrates when he found that he was the only one who acknowledged to himself that he knew nothing while in his critical pilgrimage through athens and calling on the greatest statesmen orators poets and artists he discovered everywhere the conceit of knowledge he perceived to his astonishment that all these celebrities were without a proper and accurate insight even with regard to their own callings and practised them only by instinct only by instinct with this phrase we touch upon the heart and core of the socratic tendency 
socratism condemns therewith existing art as well as existing ethics wherever socratism turns its searching eyes it beholds the lack of insight and the power of illusion and from this lack infers the inner perversity and objectionableness of existing conditions from this point onwards socrates believed that he was called upon to correct existence and with an air of disregard and superiority as the precursor of an altogether different culture art and morality he enters single-handed into a world of which if we reverently touch the hem we should count it our greatest happiness here is the extraordinary hesitancy which always seizes upon us with regard to socrates and again and again invites us to ascertain the sense and purpose of this most questionable phenomenon of antiquity who is it that ventures single-handed to disown the greek character which as homer pindar and aeschylus as phidias as pericles as pythia and dionysus as the deepest abyss and the highest height is sure of our wondering admiration what demoniac power is it which would presume to spill this magic draught in the dust what demigod is it to whom the chorus of spirits of the noblest of mankind must call out they they do hast sie zerstört die schöne welt mit mächtiger faust sie stürzt sie gerfolte woe woe thou hast it destroyed the beautiful world with powerful fist in ruin tis hurled a key to the character of socrates is presented to us by the surprising phenomenon designated as a daimonium of socrates in special circumstances when his gigantic intellect began to stagger he got a secure support in the utterances of a divine voice which then spake to him this voice whenever it comes always dissuades in this totally abnormal nature instinctive wisdom only appears in order to hinder the progress of conscious perception here and there while in all productive men it is instinct which is the creatively affirmative force consciousness only comporting itself critically and dissuasively with socrates it is instinct which becomes critic it is consciousness which becomes creator a perfect monstrosity per defectum and we do indeed observe here a monstrous defectus of all mystical attitude so that socrates might be designated as the specific non-mystic in whom the logical nature is developed through a superfetation to the same excess as instinctive wisdom is developed in the mystic on the other hand however the logical instinct which appeared in socrates was absolutely prohibited from turning against itself in its unchecked flow it manifests a native power such as we meet with to our shocking surprise only among the very greatest instinctive forces he who has experienced even a breath of the divine naivete 
and security of the socratic course of life in the platonic writings will also feel that the enormous driving wheel of logical socratism is in motion as it were behind socrates and that it must be viewed through socrates as through a shadow and that he himself had a boding of this relation is apparent from the dignified earnestness with which he everywhere and even before his judges insisted on his divine calling to refute him here was really as impossible as to approve of his instinct disintegrating influence in view of this indissoluble conflict when he had at last been brought before the forum of the greek state there was only one punishment demanded namely exile he might have been sped across the borders as something thoroughly enigmatical irrubricable and inexplicable and so posterity would have been quite unjustified in charging the athenians with a deed of ignominy but that the sentence of death and not mere exile was pronounced upon him seems to have been brought about by socrates himself with perfect knowledge of the circumstances and without the natural fear of death he met his death with the calmness with which according to the description of plato he leaves the symposium at break of day as the last of the revellers to begin a new day while the sleepy companions remained behind on the benches and the floor to dream of socrates the true eroticist the dying socrates became the new ideal of the noble greek youths an ideal they had never yet beheld and above all the typical hellenic youth plato prostrated himself before this scene with all the fervent devotion of his visionary soul End of chapter thirteen